My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That hymn I chose particularly for this message because it is one of the great hymns of liberation that describes the liberation that comes to one who follows Christ. Their chains fall off. Their heart is free. And they are to rise, go forth, and follow thee, the Christ. Now, up this upcoming week, next Sunday, is June 19. The following day, that Monday, we will celebrate as a federal holiday, June Juneteenth is a new federal holiday. Frankly, I think we probably should have and could have been celebrating it as a federal holiday long before for the wonderful truth that it communicates. Not just a historical truth, but for its spiritual analogy and connection to us. If you don't know, Juneteenth, June 19 was the day that the Emancipation Proclamation, the proclamation of freedom to the African-American slaves, reached Texas, the last Confederate uh, territory that had not yet received the liberation of those who had been enslaved. And you can imagine the joy, you can imagine the sense of liberty and freedom that had filled the hearts of those who were hearing it. It's such a wonderful, joyful picture And it's a wonderful thing, I think, that we are formally celebrating that day. And that idea of freedom, that idea of liberty, thank you, Ben, that picture of what it means is such a powerful one, not just, of course, as a political or social or cultural matter, but of ultimately a spiritual matter. Those who were slaves in the Confederate territories saw in the gospel the picture of their delivery from the chains of bondage that were in their own lives. You think back to some of those great spirituals that we have sung in our church and continue to be sung, pictures, echoes of freedom and a desire for freedom that they recognized was not just a political matter, but was a personal and spiritual matter. There is something about the liberation that the gospel offers. And I start here because when we come to this story, one of the most dramatic stories in all of the gospel record, one that creates almost as many questions for some of us as it does answers, it is important to view it in the context in which Mark presents it. Notice the bookends of this story and then try to place yourself into what on earth is going on. Notice in verse number one. And they came over unto the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. Now, where were we last Sunday morning at the end of Mark chapter four as we continue to work through this book together? We were on the sea, the Sea of Galilee. Where were the disciples? They had been in the northern part, if not the northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee, And they were crossing over to the other side because Jesus says, let's go to the other side. So they get in the boat, they go. You remember the storm, Jesus is asleep in the pillow. They wake him up, Jesus, 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 don't you care that we're perishing? Of course Jesus cared about them. He gets up, he stills the sea, and he reveals to us a great lesson on faith. 
Jesus wasn't afraid, and they shouldn't have been either. No boat that has Jesus in it sinks. That's just the truth. And so Jesus rebukes their fear and their lack of faith, and now they are over to the other side. Now, if you can just imagine the Sea of Galilee as this long, skinny lake, and they are going from the northern side, the northwestern side, all the way to the eastern side of the lake, perhaps even to the southeastern side of the lake. They're cutting a diagonal, if you will, across. And now they come out to the other side. And what happens over here? Well, the area of the Gadarenes, or as Decapolis as it's seen elsewhere, had Jews in it, but it was not a particularly Jewish area. It was a Gentile area. And in fact, this is highlighted when you see that in this story, there's a herd of what? Pigs. No observant Jew would have had a herd of pigs. No observant area where Judaism was, particularly the Pharisaical form of Judaism, would have had anything to do with pigs. So the fact that there's a big herd of pigs here suggests either these are not Jews in the story or they're very non-devout Jews. They are not practicing or observant Jews. So Jesus is coming to an area where Gentile culture is flourishing and there's not the religion, the devout religion of Judaism. And he comes over and he gets out of the boat and we see in this story immediately a wild man runs up to him like, like he's almost right there on the shore. He's barely gotten into this country to the other side at all. This man we read is a demon-possessed man. A man who is utterly under the control of demonic influence and force. Now, there are those today who would be skeptical, who would say, oh, this is just their way of describing mental illness no, not at all. The story that we have here of the eyewitness accounts of those who saw it knew exactly what was going on. And the dramatic effect that it had on the pigs was clear that this was a supernatural, demonic influence that had pervaded this man's very existence. Well, what happens in the story? We just heard it. Jesus orders or allows those demons. He commands them out. He allows them to go into the pigs. The pigs go down to their death. The people come out from the surrounding towns and say, please leave. We'll get to that. Please leave. The man comes to Jesus who's been delivered from these demons, and he says, can I come with you? And Jesus says, no. Can't you imagine the disciples? Jesus, there's room in the boat. I mean, he'd have a pretty good story to share on the other side. No. No, you stay here. You go tell everyone what I did for you. And then notice with me verse number 21. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, he gets back into the boat and he leaves. Do you, do you get this just remarkable picture? He comes over the, bo over the lake to the other side, he gets out of the boat. He casts a, demon, a bunch of demons out of a guy. They ask him to leave, so he gets back in the ship and goes to the other side. What's going on here? This story is a powerful picture to us of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And it has everything to do with liberation, with emancipation. We call Abraham Lincoln the great emancipator. What we should call Jesus is the great liberator. 
The title of the message this morning is Christ the Liberator. Christ the Liberator. And what I want to see in this story is a picture of what true liberty looks like in Jesus Christ and what is the natural responsibility for all of us who have been liberated in our own daily lives. Let's start first of all by looking from Mark chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to have them open with us this morning. I'm going to call first of all an extreme case. An extreme case. Let's take a look at this man that is described for us in the book of Mark. Now just one note that might be helpful for us. In the book of Matthew, this same story is recounted and we learn from Matthew that there were actually two demon-possessed men. Mark and Luke, in their account, focus on the one that was the one speaking and likely the one most prominent. But just in case you are confused by that, this Mark is focusing on the most prominent one. And notice verse 2, and when he was come out of the ship, immediately, so right away at once he gets to land, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now this is referring to, again, a demonic force that had invaded his being. Now notice verse 3, who had his dwelling among the tombs. So he lived in the cemetery. Now, most ordinary people don't do that. I think we could understand. There was something very strange about this man's fascination with the dead. And no man could bind him, no, not with chains. They could not shackle him up with chains because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains and the chains had been plucked asunder, just torn apart by him. And the fetters over his feet Broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. Now pause for just a moment. Notice that many people had tried to help this man. They had tried to bind him so that he couldn't hurt himself and others. You say, well, that's probably not all that different from what standard treatment has been for most of the history of the world. Friends, it wasn't that long ago that common treatment for people who were out of their minds, if you will, insane, was to be put in a straitjacket, to be put in a padded cell, so simply they could not further harm themselves and others. This man, their method was changed. They had tried to put him in shackles, and his, this kind of d demonic, supernatural strength that he had allowed him to just tear those chains right off. He could not be bound, and neither could any man tame him. No one could bring him under control. Now, the simple point I want to make about this man, first of all, is that from a certain perspective, he was utterly liberated. He was free. What do I mean by that? No one could put him under captivity. No man could tame him. No man could put him under their authority. He was a free man, utterly free. But of course, you and I both know that he was not truly liberated. He was utterly enslaved. He was utterly controlled, not by himself, not by God, but by that which was utterly bent on his destruction. The French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau said these words, probably his most famous words, man is born free, 
but everywhere is in chains. Man is born free, but everywhere is in chains. It's a great paradox to Rousseau. Well, Rousseau was speaking as a political matter, but we could say the same thing as a spiritual matter. Those who live their lives as apparently unhindered, uh, entirely emancipated, entirely liberated, free to do whatever I want, are truly those who are the most in bondage, the most enslaved. Look at what this man had. Verse 5 tells us, And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying and cutting himself with stones. The idea of crying there is not weeping. It's screaming. Screaming. And you can just imagine the, the place where he was, the city that was around him. He would have become not an urban legend, but a real, true legend. Oh, yeah, the guy who's out in the tombs, the guy in the cemetery. Can you imagine the, the parents saying, kids, on the way home from school, yeah, don't go by the cemetery. Yeah, at night, don't, don't go anywhere near those tombs. This man is dangerous. He's completely unhindered. You could hear him screaming and howling during the day and in the evenings he, when he was perhaps out in the mountains wandering. I mean, just put yourself in that position of the people in that area, knowing who this man was, fearing who this man was and what he was capable of. They had tried to bring him under. They had tried to tame him. They had tried to, bound, to bind him, and he was utterly uh, liberated from their influence. But not only was he utterly liberated, not only was he at the same time utterly enslaved, he was utterly miserable. He was utterly miserable. Notice one thing that Mark makes sure that we know. He was cutting himself with stones. There was something about his enslavement that he realized, and he utterly detested himself. He was given over to self-mutilation, to self-harm, to a kind of self-loathing and self-hatred that just utterly wanted to just debase his physical body. Now, it's easy when we start thinking about this man to say, well, if there are any people that would be comparable to him, they'd be living under a bridge somewhere. They would be someone who's roaming the streets at night, utterly out of control. That's not us. That's not me. But then let's go back to a higher level of generality and understand what this man actually was experiencing. How many people in our world today are dealing with self-hatred and self-loathing based on the impulses that they can't seem to control? And they just utterly hate themselves. They detest themselves. They want to injure themselves because of the own uh, 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 captivity and enslavement that they sense. Think about those who are utterly free in a certain sense, yet utterly in bondage to that. How many of us have experienced our own behaviors, maybe are, are experiencing right now our own habits that you don't seem to have any control over? That habit says jump, and you say, how high? You have no ability. In one sense, you are entirely free to give yourself to pornography, to give yourself to illicit drugs or to alcohol or to overeating or to some other thing that you cannot seem to control. And in a sense, you hate yourself for it. 
You are, con- you are confined in guilt and in shame. Why do I keep going back to the same thing over and over again? I know it is destroying me, but I seem to have no power, no ability to actually get it under control. Any of you, any of you can testify to this. It is our own compulsion. It is our own drawing. Now we understand why Jesus said in John chapter 8, he had told the Jews that were listening to him, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And they couldn't get it. The truth will set you free. They said, we're not slaves to anybody. We're the sons of Abraham. Who enslaves us? And Jesus says to them, you don't understand. He that committeth sin, Jesus said, is the servant, literally the slave of sin. Sin makes slaves of all of us. It is our natural condition to be given over to things that we know are destroying us. And yet we do them anyway, seemingly out of any control. What is the result for this man? He's separated entirely from human relationships. No one dares be around him. He's separated entirely from self-respect. He has no sense that he is a, a man born in the image of God, made in the likeness of God, loved by God, cared for by God. That is the answer to all those who pursue self-mutilation, self-harm, self-injury. Friend, you are made in the image of God and fearfully and wonderfully by one who loves you and your body. But ultimately, he is separated entirely from the love of God. He is separated entirely from a relationship with God by being utterly controlled by these demonic influences that are tormenting him. This is an extreme case. But notice secondly here, in encounter, notice how, what we see next. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him. Now the idea of worshipping him is falling down on his face before him. This man falls down before Jesus and cries, he screams, he shouts with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? Now sometimes it's difficult to discern here when the man is speaking out of his own volition and when the demons are speaking through him. It's not always clear. But it's clear here that the demons knew who Jesus was. Isn't that an amazing thing? He sees this stranger from the other side of the lake getting off the boat, and he sprints to him and says, I know you. How do you know him? You've never met him before. You've never seen him. Well, friends, the truth is that demons have orthodox theology. They know who Jesus is. John, James chapter 2 says, Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. The demons know exactly Theology. They know the doctrine of Jesus Christ. So they see this man coming, and they are terrified. They come to him. They fall down before him. And we see that what Jesus has said to them is, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. This is what eight, verse 8 tells us. He said, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And notice the response of these demons after they have identified him as the Son of the Most High God something that not even his disciples had done as yet. Listen to what they say. I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. 
I adjure. That word adjure, we don't come into that. It's the idea of putting someone under a vow. It's like saying, it, it's like calling an oath on someone and saying, you had better not. I am solemnly swearing, please do not do this to me. They were begging him. Don't torment us. Now, Matthew's account has a very interesting addition to us, to this. It says that he, they were pleading with him, please don't torment us before the time. Before the time. What time? Why were they fearful that Jesus would torment them? Friends, demons have orthodox theology. And they know what their end is. They know what the result of their uh, behavior is going to be. In fact, in the book of Revelation, do you know what the Bible tells us? The devil and his angels will be cast into the lake of fire and they will be tormented. Same word, they will be tormented. These demons said, do not torment us. It's not the time. Now, what is Christ's response? Notice what he says. He asked him, what is thy name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. My name is Legion, for we are many. They were identifying the number of demons that were inhabiting, that were invading this man. Now, a legion, a legion was actually a term of art in the Roman world. A legion reflected a Roman force that could have as many as 6,000 soldiers in it. It could have several thousand less. It perhaps could have more. But it was anything that reflected a really significant force of soldiers. So when these, sold, when these demons say to Jesus, we are many, we are legion, that is our name, they were reflecting the fact that there could have been thousands of demons inhabiting a symbol, a single human host. In fact, we see later when there were 2,000 pigs and these demons go into them, suggesting that there were at least 2,000 demonic spirits, fallen angels, inhabiting this one man. Now notice, and he besought him much. This man pleaded with him that he would not send them away out of the country now there was there nigh under the mountains a great herd of swine feeding, and all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. Now why on earth did these devils say, Can you send us away into the pigs? I've got no idea. I haven't the foggiest idea. I've never been very good at getting into the heads of demons. Thank you very much. I'm very grateful to report. I've gotten, I honestly have no idea. Other than that, it seems like they were saying, don't send us away out of the country. They wanted to have still an influence in that area. They had had great success with this man. They still wanted to remain in the area. And they said, well, pigs are better than no one. Maybe we can at least have some influence in them. And forthwith, Jesus gave them leave. He allowed them. He said, okay, go. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked, were drowned in the sea. You might say that they took a swine dive. 
Folks, just groan. We'll get right past it. We certainly do not want our time hogged up by bad pig jokes. It's out of my system now. We can, we can relax. We're done. I'm disappointed that Johnny's not here this morning. I know he would have had one or two back for me, but uh, maybe, Dan, you can fill Johnny in next time on, on that utterly horrible one. Okay, all right, where were we? So these swine, these pigs, die. 2,000. Now, it, it's difficult for us to imagine a herd of 2,000. 2,000 pigs. And some people look at this and they say, how could Jesus be so cruel? How could he destroy the economic livelihood of these people? Well, let's pause for just a minute. Knowing what we know about the profit motive, I can guarantee you those, those farmers, those, those, those uh, herdsmen, they were in the water getting as much bacon recovered as they could. I can promise you they were trying to retrieve as much of the pig as they could. This was not utterly destroying, I think, their livelihood. But what's going on here? Why did Jesus allow them to go into these pigs? Well, just a couple of observations, and again, we, we don't need to be dogmatic about it. Some people have suggested Jesus was doing this to have a judgment on a Jewish, perhaps, people, if they were Jewish farmers, who were having a herd of unclean animals. I don't think that's it. I don't think that's what's going on. In fact, sometimes we assume that it was the demons going into these pigs and the demons caused them to go down and be destroyed. I don't know that that's the right assumption either. Remember what the demons said. We want to stay in the country. We still want to have some influence in this area. Why would they have caused those pigs to go down into the water and be destroyed? I think the more likely, again, this is speculation, but I think the more likely explanation is that the pigs responded so violently to being indwelt by these demonic spirits that they chose death over demons. They went down and said anything but this. And in that way, I wonder, again, this is speculation, but I wonder whether this is exactly Christ's mercy to this area. They said, don't send us away out of the country and don't torment us. Don't send us down to the place of final judgment. And Jesus sends them out into the pigs and they ultimately, those pigs, those hosts, are killed. And perhaps that influence in that area was delivered or lessened. Whatever it is, this is a complete destruction showing ultimately the, a very graphic picture of what demons desire from all of us. Now notice we haven't figured out this until we see not only the demon's reaction, not only Christ's response, but the man's condition. Notice what happens. Verse 14, And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that was done. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion. Now notice, look at his condition. He is sitting. He is clothed. The book of Luke tells us that he had no clothes. He was running around entirely naked in that area before. And he was in his right mind. He was in his right mind. Friends, I want you to see the effect that Christ the liberator had on this man. And I want you to understand what true liberty looks like. 
This man knew what it was to be liberated under no restraints from anyone. No restraints from God, no restraints from the community, no no restraint from government. And he was miserable in it. He was utterly enslaved. And what happens after Christ the liberator meets him? He's now liberated. What does it look like? He's seated. He has control to sit down and rest. Friends, we should just make a note about the control that busyness asserts over our life. Sometimes we feel compelled to run this way and that way and this way and that way, and we are like slaves to our calendar. We're like slaves to our busyness. Do you know what the gospel allows you to do? It allows you to rest. It allows you to come to a place of sitting down and having the trust to say, God's got this. I don't need to worry about tomorrow. I don't need to be anxious about my health. I don't need to run here and there trying to fix every problem in the world. I have a loving heavenly father who has promised to take care of me. I can be seated. What does liberty look like? The liberty to come at rest. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, all of you who are weary on the inside and burdened down on the outside, and I will give you rest. That's what liberty looks like the ability to be seated. Notice what also liberty looked like for him. He was clothed. Liberty does not look like the freedom to take off our clothes, to send messages by our bodies and our clothing or the lack thereof. Liberty looks like the ability to dress a way that is proper, that is appropriate. You know, sometimes we have a a misunderstanding about one of the most important principles in the Bible when it comes to modesty. This applies both to men and women. Modesty is not simply about the covering, the amount of covering, though that is a biblical principle too. Modesty is about the message you are sending by the way you dress and by many other things too, by the car you drive, by the house you live in, by the jewelry that you wear. When we are commanded to be modest, to have a modest approach, we recognize that what I wear sends messages to everyone around me about how I'm communicating myself. How am I presenting myself to other people? And the fundamental principle in the Bible of modesty is a recognition that ultimately I want to glorify him, not myself. That the message I send about myself, including in the clothing I wear, is not, hey, look at me, look at me. It's really formally and fundamentally, look at him. Look at him. When I stand in front of the mirror in the clothes that I am wearing that day, I should ask myself, what message am I intending to send to everyone who sees me? And is it a modest message? Is it, it's not about me. I'm not about myself. I'm not self-centered. I care about him. That's a very important principle here. This man was seated He was clothed, and notice also he was in his right mind. What does that mean? He was in control of his faculties. There is a a movement today, even in in Christian churches, in Christian places, to, to, to view liberation as the ability to have our mind controlled by substances, to have our mind controlled by alcohol, to have our mind controlled by marijuana or some other illicit drug or substance. And we say, there's nothing wrong with that, friend. Scripture says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess. Don't be controlled by wine, by alcohol, by drugs, by any other thing. Be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled entirely by Him. And you see, when I am allowing my mind 
to be controlled by an all other substance, it's not being controlled by the Holy Spirit, and therefore is wrong. Liberation, liberty doesn't look like, sweet, let's have a great time and bring ourselves under the influences of other things. Liberty looks like the ability to control our mind and direct it in the way that God intends. Friends, do you see the point here? Contrary to what our culture tells us, liberty ultimately is not freedom to do whatever you want. Liberty is the empowerment to do what you should. Liberty is the freedom to direct your life according to how God wants it to operate. Because ultimately that was what this man was utterly enslaved in. Completely enslaved to live not according to a relationship with God, but according to a destructive, miserable life. Friends, is that the liberty that you are pursuing, the liberty that the Holy Spirit came to give you to empower you to do what was right, to empower you to live the way God wants you to live and experience the joy and peace and fulfillment that only comes from walking in his way, not the way of a kind of liberty that is a freedom from any restraint. It's a wonderful picture here of this man who has met Christ, the liberator. But that's where we need to look finally, not just at an extreme case, not just at this encounter with the liberator, but finally the effect of this encounter. There's a wonderful contrast here. Notice what happens. These people come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil, the surrounding townspeople, and they see him sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. They said, you should have seen what happened. Not only to the swine, but to this man. Now verse 17, and they began to pray him, to implore him, to beg him to depart out of their coasts. Now does this make any sense? Here's a guy that had tormented the entire area that no one knew how to deal with. He has been miraculously liberated and delivered by the power of Jesus Christ. And their response is, Jesus, please leave. Please. They should have been welcoming into their town and saying, is there anyone else that can be delivered? Can we be delivered? Can we be liberated? Why not? What's going on here? I think one thing is really significant. Some people have suggested, well, I think it was because they were so upset about losing that herd of pigs, they just wanted him to leave. Again, I don't think that's the main idea here. I think it's this. These people had come into contact with a power that they could not control. And what terrifies people the most is when there is a power that they do not have control over. Have you seen this before? A new technology comes into play and we don't know how it's going to be limited or regulated and we're naturally conservative and cautious. I'm a little worried about that. I'm not sure that we have control over that. And here these people had recognized this force that they had no ability to control to control a man that they couldn't control. And it's as if they say, we're going to choose the devil we know, literally, over the devil we don't. Jesus, we're not so sure about your power. We don't have control over it. 
Do you know some people how much this hinders them from coming to Christ? You give the gospel to someone and you say, you can have the forgiveness of sins. You can have life everlasting with Jesus in heaven. You can have joy and peace now. You can live the way God intended you to live. And they say, that all sounds great. What's required? And you say, kneel before the king and accept him. Embrace him as your Lord, as your Savior. They say, okay, never mind. They are happy to be liberated as long as they're still in control. But the moment the gospel touches who's on the throne of their life, who is in control, and you say Jesus needs to be in control, they say, okay, never mind. I like my slavery just the way it was. Thank you very much. I want to keep living just the way I was. These people were not willing to be liberated themselves. They were not willing to submit to King Jesus. They were fine if he departed as long as they could still be in control. And friends, I need to ask you this this morning. If you are still enslaved to sin in ways that you know of, if you have not been liberated, if your sins have not been forgiven by Jesus the liberator, are you willing to bow your knee before him this morning and say, you're in control, I'm not. I'm accepting you as my king. Here's my throne, I'm getting off and you're getting on. That's what it means ultimately to be a, a Christian to embrace Jesus, not just for the benefits that we think he's going to give us, but to embrace him for who he is, the king in God's kingdom. Today, maybe one of us here needs to bow the knee before Jesus and say, I embrace you, I trust on you for, you, for who you are and who God has sent you to be. But notice this wonderful contrast. Notice verse 18. And when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed, same word, pleaded with him, begged him that he might be with him. Now here's what's surprising. Jesus suffered or allowed him not, but saith unto him, go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. What does Jesus tell him? He says, don't come with me. Go home to your friends Go home, to your home to your home base. Go home to the region that everyone knows you as a wild man who cannot be tamed, who cannot be controlled. Tell them about the liberty you found in me. Tell them about your newfound deliverance. Tell them who I am. Tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. Friends, if you've been liberated by Jesus Christ from your sin, the message of Jesus is the great commission that he gave to this man and later has given to all of us. Go and tell what God has done for you. Do you know what hinders us often, so often, I think, from telling other people about Jesus? We're worried about the questions they're going to have. Well, what about if they ask us this theological question? I don't feel like I know the answer. And what if they ask us this theological question? I'm not sure. I might just be tongue-tied and stutter. I can't tell anyone. Friends, you know what you can tell. You can tell what God has done for you. That's what you can tell. And if someone asked, if you think if someone had asked a man this, this man this question, hey, so can you answer the problem of evil in the world? Why is there evil in the world if the king had come? Oh, I don't know. All I know is that I was demon-possessed before and I was miserable and he made me free. That's all I know. And for some of us, that's what God has told you to do, to go to those closest to you, 
those in your workplace, those in your own home, those in your neighborhood, those at your school, and simply say, can I just tell you what Jesus has done for me? He can do the same thing for you. He's willing to have compassion on you too. But then notice in verse 20, and he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel Decapolis was a a, a term that was used for 10 cities in that entire region. It wasn't just one city. It was the entire region. This guy went to the entire region to tell everyone what Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. Friends, do you see the glory of this? Jesus shows up to these people and they say, no, please leave. Please leave. And now he sends this man to be his ambassador, to be his missionary, and this man goes, and people say, wow, we can't believe that. Tell us more. The simple truth is God wants you to be his ambassador. He wants you to be his missionary to those you are closest with, to testify to and to live out a life that has been liberated to live the way God has ordered you, has instructed you, has empowered you to live. In this, friends, ultimately, when we think about why Jesus came, why did he go all the way across the Sea of Galilee to get out of the boat, heal one man, and then get back into the boat and go to the other side? Why did he do this? He did this for a few different reasons. One, to show the power of Christ over demonic influence. We don't need to be afraid. We can rest entirely in his sovereignty and his authority even over evil. Not only that, it it demonstrates the enslaved condition and those who need to be liberated from from it. But ultimately, friends, it also reveals the great heart and mercy of Jesus Christ to find one person who is enslaved and ultimately empower them not only to be liberated but to go spread the message of liberation to all those in that area. It reminds me, doesn't it, of that seed that we thought about earlier. One seed goes down into the ground and it produces a great harvest, a great fruit. And notice what Jesus did. He went into this land. He went all the way across the sea to plant one seed in the ground. Do you know Jesus comes back later in Mark chapter 7 to Decapolis, to this same area? And do you know what they do when, they get to, when Jesus gets to Decapolis? They bring him someone to heal, someone who is deaf. Now, why would they do that? Do you think it might have been that they'd heard about who this Jesus was from this man who they all knew to be a wild man who needed to be liberated and was? Do you think this was a picture of that seed going into the ground and springing up and producing fruit? I think it may have been. And here's the point. If you're enslaved today, to your sin. Jesus wants to free you. He wants to deliver you. He wants to give you power to break whatever habit you can't shake today. He wants that. And he's willing to give it to you by by his Holy Spirit. But also this, have you been liberated? Has your life been changed? Be like this man. Go and just tell people what Jesus has done for you and give them the opportunity to meet the liberator as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful story, a very dramatic story. Some questions perhaps we don't fully know how to answer, but we see the big picture. We see that Jesus is the liberator, the one who came to free those who were enslaved. 
and to send us out to be his missionaries, to be his ambassadors, and to give his word to others who need to be freed. Oh, I pray, Father, that we would know the liberation that comes through Jesus Christ.